Hi, my name is Mark Riggins, and I'm pastor here at LifePoint, located in Plano, Texas, and we meet here every Sunday at 1030, and we are here for your family. I hope today's message is an encouragement to you. So it's good to see all of you here today. We'll jump right into the message, and we'll jump into it the way that we always do. I would love to ask you to stand, and we'll quote our verse together, our memory verse, Acts chapter 20. Verse 24, would you just say that out loud with me? However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Acts 20, 24, let's pray. God, we thank you so much that you are here You are here with us this morning. And Lord, as we gather as a church, our ultimate aim is to make you bigger, to know you more, to be shaped by you, and to leave here today more in love with you. So God, would you speak to us from your word in the next few moments, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Be seated if you would. It's so good to see you all here this morning. And hey, I read this week that the average person makes between hundreds and thousands of decisions every single day. I don't know if you think of it in terms of that, but you know, you wake up and you're thinking, okay, what will I wear? What will I eat? How will I get to work? Which route will I take? When I get there, what project will I start on first? And then it's like, am I going to be disciplined to not get on social media? If I do, whose post will I like? What will I post? Like we have all these decisions that we're making early in the morning and all throughout the day. But you know that all decisions aren't the same, right? They aren't equal in value or importance. And so this week I saw that there was actual uh, report or survey that was done by Psychology Today in June, uh, rather January 31st of this year that sort of identified the top 12 decisions that we make in our lifetime. And so I want you to see this list. These are the top 12 decisions that they say that we will make in our lifetime. So you can see, you know, maybe we're purchasing something. Maybe it's about a relationship. Maybe it's about finances. Uh, You know, maybe it's about retirement. All these things that we could make. Now, I want you to look at that list for a second. And I want to see if you can identify the top one or two, because in a minute we're going to show you a list from this extensive survey where people ranked what they considered to be the most important decision. And from that list, which one do you think would be the most important decision? In fact, you can just go ahead and shout it out right now. Which one do you think it would be? Get married. Okay, that's a popular one. Well, here's the list that they said is the most, and of course this is from people's responses, starting a new job or position was number one, and just behind that is getting married, essentially the top two. And then you can see the rest of the list. Buying something or not was at the bottom of the list. That kind of is encouraging, I guess, of the 12. But it is one of the top 12 decisions that we make. The point is, some of you are in this room right now, and you're probably wrestling with one of those 12 decisions, or maybe another big decision that's not even on the list. Here's what I know, though. All of us are either wrestling with a major decision or we soon will be. And wouldn't it be nice if when we're wrestling with those decisions, if we could just come over here to the side and we could sit down with God and have a cup of coffee and just say, God, tell me the right answer. How many of you would like to have that opportunity? 
Me too. Here's the good news. God really, really loves you, but he's not gonna have that cup of coffee with you. Apparently, he's more interested. I'm interested in the answer to the question at the cup of coffee. He's more interested in the relationship that we will have while I'm pursuing the answer. And so though we all have these decisions and though I believe God will lead us in this decision, I think one of the things that's helpful to me is a recent quote written by Chuck Swindoll, who's been a pastor for more than 60 years. And look what Pastor Chuck Swindoll says. He said, the longer I live, the more I wish it were easier to determine the will of God. What could have the cup of coffee? But I usually have less difficulty following his instructions than in determining exactly what he wants me to do. Here's the truth. It's not that easy sometimes to determine exactly what God wants us to do. But it is possible. And today we're going to look at a story where the Apostle Paul is wrestling with a big decision. And there's a rare conflict in his life that some of us will have at some point, and I think this chapter is gonna really speak to it specifically. Now, you may remember about five weeks ago, we talked about the will of God and we kind of used this three-pronged um, tripod up here. Do you remember that? And if you missed that, you can go back on our website, click on messages and listen to the message on September the 19th. We went through Acts 16 when we talked about the three facets of the will of God. It's an important filter when we're making decisions. And essentially it looks like this. There's one facet of God's will that's often called the providential will of God. Then we have the uh, moral will of God. And then we have the personal will of God. Now, the providential will of God is sort of that big stuff that we can't control, sort of like whatever um, family of origin you were born into or whatever nation you were born into or whenever natural disasters take place. There are a lot of things we can't control. They just happen. And our job is simply to trust God with things we can't control. And some of us struggle with that, me included, but this is an important part of God's will. Then there's the moral will of God, and these are sort of the do's and don'ts, right? The, the commands God gives us all throughout his word, and our job is not to pray about those things, but to obey them. These are both considered the revealed will of God, but then there's the hidden will of God on that back leg, and this is the personal will of God, and these are all the big decisions that we're trying to make, where we're wanting to know, God, I wanna have a cup of coffee so I can know if I should marry her, I wanna know if I should buy that house, I wanna know if I should retire, should I make that investment? These are the personal will of God. And what we discovered five weeks ago and we went through that message on September the 19th, was that when we are surrendered to the providential and moral will of God, we are more likely to discover the personal will of God. I can't ignore these two things or be in uh, opposition to these and expect God to reveal his personal will. It's sort of I gotta say yes before I even know the what. So this is where I'm trying to figure out what about these big decisions. Now here's the question. Once I've surrendered to the providential and moral will of God, how do I discover the personal will? Like, what do I do now? In other words, I have a big decision to make, and maybe that's where you are today. Now what? What do I need to do? Where should I go, and where should I turn to? Because I'm in the middle of it. I, okay, I got the providential moral will. That's great, that's great. But I need to know, do I buy the house or not? Do I marry him or not? Like, we're wrestling with all these real-life decisions, and we always will. What do we do when we're in that place? And that's where Paul's gonna take us today. Now, I just wanna tell you, if you're new here today and you don't normally do the church thing, I bet you, you still would like to have that cup of coffee with God, wouldn't you? 
We all want that. And just know, those of us who are coming to church every week, we want that too. And I think there'll be something helpful in this chapter that we're gonna look at today for all of us with all of these decisions that we come across in our life from day to day. Now, I think there are two things that the Bible regularly tells us. If you really wanna know what God's will is for your life, You've got to regularly be exposing yourself to God himself, seeking God, and you've got to be seeking advice from wise people. Seeking God himself and seeking advice. Now you say, okay, but how do I do that? We're going to talk about that a little bit later, so just hang on. But those are the two big categories. But I think the story of Paul himself in today's chapter is a fascinating story because here's what happens, and this is something you may have never even thought of. What if, okay, I'm going to seek God and I'm going to seek wise advice, but what if God seems to be telling me one thing and my wise advisors are telling me something else? What do I do then? Like there are always these exceptions, right? That's why I think it's, I'm always a little nervous when, seven, when someone says, here are the five things you always do to know God's will. And I'm like, well, yeah, but what about, but what about? And this is one of those, but what about chapters? Because all of a sudden God says to do this and his wise advisors say, do something else. What do you do then? Well, that's exactly what we're gonna look at with the apostle Paul today. He comes into the, one of those rare moments where there's opposition from really godly sources. And I want you to see how he navigates that. And I think it'll be helpful for us today. If you got your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 21. We're gonna pick up the story there. In fact, we're on this journey. We're concluding it today. We've been going through Paul's third missionary, third and final missionary journey. In fact, there's a map here that you can look at that shows you the entire course of this journey, which took years for Paul to make. And now he's coming off of, uh, from the Mediterranean all the way back over past the island of Cyprus. You see that there. And then you see where it says Syria, ancient Syria there. And then if you look down, he comes to Caesarea. You see it's the second to the last city just before Jerusalem. And that's often called like Caesarea by the sea. It's a beautiful coastal city. Some of us have been there and it's a wonderful place. Here's where he's at a dilemma though. Does he go south to Jerusalem, which is what he wants to do to report to the church the results of the entire mission trip, or Does he go back up north to Antioch, which is where he's from? And all of his advisors will tell him, whatever you do, don't go to Jerusalem. And that's where we're gonna pick up the story. How do you know God's will? When God seems to be saying something and your advisors seem to be saying something else, when we know that both are critical for making good, godly decisions. So if you got your Bibles, open them with me to Acts chapter 21. I want to just kind of pick up one verse before we really dive into this dilemma of the decision making. And I want you to see what I think is a timely verse in Acts chapter 21 and verse 8. As we're approaching the holiday season and the weather's beginning to cooperate, we've got a couple more warm days and then it's going to get fallish again and, and I'm looking forward to that. All right, Acts chapter 21 verse 8. Look at this. Leaving the next day we reached Caesarea. So that was that city that we just looked at there on that coastal town of Israel. And we stayed at the house of, would you just say that name out loud with me? Philip. Now who's Philip? Watch this. We stayed at the house of Philip, one of the seven. Well, who's the seven? It's not the seven dwarfs. So what's he talking about? One of the seven, who are the seven, right? Like, like we're supposed to know. Well, it goes all the way back to what we looked at in Acts chapter six, when all back then the church leaders were struggling to really preach the word and pray and minister to the widows, the orphans, and the poor. And so back then they decided to elect seven deacons. 
And two of those seven deacons, one was Philip, so he was one of the seven, so it wasn't the seven dwarfs, it was the seven deacons. That's what he's referring to here. But guess who one of the other deacons was? A man named, do you know? Named Stephen. Do you remember who Stephen was? Stephen was the very first martyr in Christian history. We see his story in Acts 7. So we have Philip, who's a close friend of Stephen's because they were one of the two of the original seven disciples serving together. They were picked because they were already serving faithfully and now they're serving together as deacons. They spend years serving together and they no doubt would have been extremely close. Stephen is the first martyr, so Philip's close friend Stephen is the first martyr. And guess who oversaw Stephen being martyred? Saul, who later became Paul, and who in verse 8 here shows up at Caesarea and stays at the house of Philip. Now that just sounds super awkward, right? What have you been up to, Paul? Last time I saw you, right? How does that conversation go? Well, most scholars say it's been more than 20 years from chapter 7 of Acts all the way to Acts chapter 21. And Philip is hosting Paul and his companions in his house. How does that happen? One word. Forgiveness. Forgiveness is a powerful source. And this powerful source has changed the beef that Philip had with Paul to now host him in his home. Now here's why I think this is really timely. As we prepare for these wonderful holidays that are ahead for all of us, there's a lot of bad blood right now, isn't there? A lot of division in our conversations. And here's what breaks my heart. I hear it a lot with parents and adult children. That because we're seeing maybe the vaccines differently, all of a sudden we're dividing as families. Because adult siblings see a political issue differently and we have a different lens, all of a sudden we're dividing families over these secondary issues. And it breaks my heart. And many of you are in that position right now. It's in your family. You are experiencing it. Can I just tell you something? Thanksgiving is about one month away. It's right around the corner. Can I encourage you to do this? Reach out and make it right. Now is the time to reach out and make it right. You know why? Because I believe as strong as your beliefs are, relationships matter more. Will you just say that out loud with me? As strong as your relations, you read it right, good, good. Don't make fun of me, I'm trying, all right? All right, let me just say this too. As a, as a parent of, of emerging adult children, some of you have adult children, some of you even have grandchildren, can I just say this? As a parent with adult children, I think especially in the holidays, our primary responsibility is this. Keep our mouths shut and put out the welcome mat. Amen? Yeah, just do that. Just do that, you know why? Because if you will inject peace into your turkey this year, it will taste a lot better. Let that be what your family enjoys. That's all free of charge. I just saw this story and I thought as the holidays are coming, let's be the people who reach out and make it right. And let's value relationships over our beliefs this year and let's have some nice holiday gatherings, all right? All right, back to Paul's dilemma. Back to Paul's dilemma. Look at verse 10 with me if you would. Verse 10, Paul is debating, do I go to Jerusalem or not? Well, as we had been there a number of days, remember they're in Philip's house, 
a prophet. So this is like a religious guy. This is someone who seems to be very close to God. Named Agabus, he came down from Judea. And he came over to us and he does this odd thing. He took Paul's belt and he tied his own hands and feet with it and he said, so now he's speaking, he said, hey, God told me. Look what he says. The Holy Spirit says, Agabus is speaking, in this way, Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, where you're wanting to go, Paul, will bind you, the owner of this belt, and they will hand you over to the Gentiles. Bad things are coming if you go there. And when we all heard this, Luke, who's writing this, says that we and the people there, we pleaded with Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Paul, if that's gonna happen, then don't go. It seems logical, it seems rational. Paul, why would you go to a place where you know you're gonna experience this kind of opposition and this kind of pain and this kind of torture? Just don't go. These are his closest advisors, including a prophet, recommending that he not go. So why in the world would Paul even think about going? When we know the Bible says there is wisdom found in the multitude of counselors. In other words, good godly counselors no doubt help us make wise decisions and his good godly counselors are giving him clear and consistent advice. The only reason Paul would even consider going is because of a verse we looked at last week. It's chapter 20, verse 22, and I want you to see it. In fact, you might write beside 21, verse 12. In your Bibles, you might write down Acts 20, verse 22, because it makes the dilemma clear when you put these two verses together. Look at verse 22 of chapter 20. Paul is speaking and he says, and now, watch this, I'm compelled by the Spirit. In other words, I sense that God is drawing me. I am going to Jerusalem. And not knowing what will happen to me there, I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. So he's wide-eyed saying, I know that likely something difficult is gonna happen. I know that the future is going to be hard, and yet I believe God is leading me there. And all the people who love him say, Paul, you can't, you can't do that. And now he's in that place where God seems to be telling him something, and his close advisors seem to be telling him something else. What do you do when you have that exception to the rule of discovering God's will? And this goes back to, I believe, what Chuck Swindoll said. Is this just not always that easy? Because I suspect Paul trusted these people. He wanted their input, and yet their input conflicted with what God seemed to be telling Paul. Now, I will tell you, I believe these are rare moments when we have a conflict between truly wise advisors and a sovereign God but they do happen. As I look at my life, I can only point to one time that I have experienced that. But Ginger and I, in 2011, we had a, a, a ministry offer from Missouri, and we had a ministry offer from California. And the ministry offer from the church in Missouri was a much larger church, a more influential role, and it would have been closer to our family. Therefore, the people who were closest to us were advising us because of those three things. It made more sense logically and rationally to accept that role in Missouri. Yet, as Ginger and I kept praying, we kept sensing God just was drawing our hearts to this church in California. And so ultimately, we chose that route because 
we heard what the advisors had to say. We shared with them what we sensed God was doing. And together they were like, well, if you sense that's what God's doing, at least you've heard what we, what we are thinking. And we made that decision to go out there for, for 10 wonderful years. And we're certain that it was God's leading us to that place. But I will tell you, that's rare. If that were happening all the time, then I'm either not hearing from God well or I've got some really bad advisors, right? But I do believe it does occasionally and rarely happen. And so Paul, you won't see it here because we're gonna move along for the sake of time, but in verse 13, he goes on to explain, look, I know difficult times are coming. I hear what you're saying. I trust that you mean well in sharing this with me. And he essentially says, sometimes God asks us to do things that aren't rational and aren't logical and go against good, logical human advice. There are those times, and this is one of those times for Paul So watch how his advisors, do you think at this point they thought, well, then forget you, Paul, if you're not going to listen to us, we're out of here. No, look at verse 15. After this, after this, we started on our way up to Jerusalem. Remember, up because they're using elevation, not geography like we do. So they go up to the higher elevation of Jerusalem. In other words, Paul, if that's what you believe God wants you to do, we're in, we're still part of the team, and we're going with you. Now... Watch what happens, though, because as soon as Paul gets there, what they predicted immediately comes true. And he experiences opposition. He experiences abuse. He goes to the Jewish temple, and it is there that they turn on him in a big way. Why? Because he's the guy that's going to all these Gentiles, these non-Jewish people, and seemingly from the Jewish people's perspective, he is telling them essentially he's minimizing their faith. He's not requiring these Gentiles to follow Jewish custom. And he's saying that it's through Christ and Christ alone and everybody's in an uproar. And watch how passionate they are. Look at verse 35, it says, when Paul reached the steps there of the temple, the violence of the mob was so great, he had to be carried by the soldiers And the crowd that followed kept shouting, get rid of him. Well, that's quite a welcome. There's no welcome mat there, is there? In fact, it's not too far from this very spot where they were saying the same things about Jesus. Now, can you imagine if Paul, while he's walking and he's saying, you know, all these people are kind of abusing, don't you think his advisors at some point are kind of going, they're kind of doing the side-eyed thing, like, I told him. I knew this was coming, but he wouldn't listen to us. Paul knew it was coming too and decided to go there anyway. And now he has a moment where he wants to speak to the crowd. Look at it, verse 40. He motions his hand and after receiving the commander's permission, Paul, to this angry army or a crowd of people, he stood on the steps and he motioned to the crowd. And when they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic, so he speaks in their language. And can you imagine of all the things he could say in this moment, Paul realizes they don't need doctrine They don't need theology. They don't need to believe rightly. He decides, I'm going to share with them the most powerful thing I own, my personal story. And sometimes people will ask me, Mark, when you say we should go and evangelize, when you say that we should go and share, point people to the good news of Jesus, just like Paul did, how do we do that? I love what Paul reveals here. The most powerful thing you own in sharing Jesus is what Jesus has done in your life, your personal story. It's the most compelling case for Christianity, your 
personal story. You say, well, but how do I share my story? Well, now that's the good question because here comes Paul. He's gonna demonstrate how to share his story. He simply divides his life into three parts, before, during, and after, right? He says, here was my life before Christ, here's my encounter with Christ, and here's my ministry in Christ or my purpose since I met Christ. And so he gets the crowd quiet and he decides to pull out the biggest uh, shot he can shoot, which is his personal story. Look at chapter 22, verse four, where he begins. He says, I, Paul, before I met Christ, I persecuted the followers of the way. Remember, that's what they called Christians, people of the way, because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And they persecuted them to their death. And I was arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison as the high priest and all the council can testify. I even obtained letters from them to to their associates in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. That's his before story. Now, he was essentially a terrorist for God. I don't know what you did before you were converted, I bet you, you weren't a terrorist for God. Some of us can look at Paul's story and go, man, compared to Paul's story, my story doesn't seem that dramatic, right? Like, I don't know about you, but I was one of those fortunate people. I was raised in a Christian home and I decided to give my life to Christ at the, at the whopping age of five. Like my pre-salvation experience, I wasn't doing a lot of crime or drugs yet, right? I was five. And so at the age of five, I gave my life to Christ. I was like, you know, something is missing and I know about this Jesus. And at the end of a service, I went and tugged on my dad's jacket and I said, I wanna give my life to this Jesus. We were down in NS, Texas and he walked me up to the altar and showed me some scripture out of Romans. And I began to make a decision to give my life to Christ. I didn't even know what that fully meant yet. I just knew that God was drawing me and I wanted to do it. And I stood up from that being a live person who was dead when I knelt down according to scripture. And so there was nothing not some wild before and after external behavior like Paul's. And I don't know about you, but sometimes it feels like our story is a little eh in comparison to some of the stories around us. I wanna encourage you in a minute because I believe that's an important distinction in how we share our story. But look how Paul encountered Christ because if you think your story is boring, wait till you see his encounter. Look at verse six. It was about noon, I'm walking down the street, Paul said, and I came near Damascus Suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I didn't have that. I fell down to the ground and I heard a voice. This is Jesus himself saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Paul asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. How dramatic is that? That's a pretty cool story to tell. And I don't know about you, but I read that story and I think, my story is just boring in comparison. My story, like I, you know, I gave my life to Christ. But the problem is, I tend to look at this kind of a story and I look at this really bad before behavior and then I look at this really good uh, exterior behavior afterwards as if that's what makes the story attractive, as if that's what makes the story powerful. But it's this same Paul who would write in Ephesians chapter 2 that that is not what made his story powerful and it's not what makes your story and my story powerful. He said what makes our story powerful is when we surrender our life to Jesus that we go from death to life. 
that he takes a heart of stone and makes it a heart of flesh, that there is a resurrection that takes place internally that is significant. In other words, what happens in us is the miracle, not the behavior that changes from the external. In other words, Paul says, the one who has the dramatic story, it's not the dramatic exterior that's the miracle, it's the internal transformation that matters. Paul's the one that said, Jesus did not come to this earth to make good people or make bad people good. Jesus came to this earth to make dead people alive. And you and I, when we put our faith in Jesus, the miracle is we went from death to life. And let me just tell you, there's no such thing as a boring resurrection story. Your story is a miracle. It's learning to tell it based on what scripture says took place internally and re-embracing the miracle of your salvation. Learning your story in a way that you can tell it. Now watch once Paul comes to Christ, what happens next? He's given purpose. Look down at verse 15, it says, you will be his witness to all people of what you have seen and heard. And now what are you waiting for? Get up. Be baptized, if the cameras are working, and, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. It's like, come on, Paul, the most natural thing you're supposed to do is go and give your life to Christ. Now go be baptized. Why? That isn't what saves you any more than the external behavior change saves you. There is a miracle that's taken place that the external behavior will, will testify to. There's a miracle that has taken place that the external baptism will testify to. And that's what Paul did. Listen, some of you have yet to be baptized. I just wanna encourage you to take that step. You can go and you can scan the QR code that's on the screen, that's on the pew. You can go and let us know out in the booth afterwards, the Guest Information Center. We wanna help you take that step. We just believe it's that important. All right, so at the end, did the crowd finally calm down? Did the crowd finally come around? Did things kind of work out eventually for Paul? Well, unfortunately, look at verse 22. So the crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their, their voices and shouted, we love you, Paul, you're a great man of God, we wanna honor you. No, look what they said. Rid the earth of him, he's not fit to live. Man, that's hateful, isn't it? There's so much passion opposing Paul in this moment. As they were shouting, they weren't sitting around behaving gentlemanly. They were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air. They're angry. They're opposing Paul all the way to the end. He knew God wanted him to go. His advisor says don't because it's gonna be bad. He went and his advisors were right, but I love this, his advisors were still with him. They were still with him. Those are good advisors all the way to the end. So here's the question. So what do you do? When you're facing a big decision and you've done all you know to do, you're obeying all that scripture says, you're trusting his providential will of God that's out of your control and now you have a big decision to make. What do you do then? I just wanna say, I believe when making a big decision, we have to listen to God primarily through the Bible and through prayer. The Bible changes our mind and the prayer changes our heart and then listen to wise advisors secondarily, knowing that you very well may never achieve 100% clarity and it'll rarely be easy. How's that for an unsatisfying answer? 
but I believe it's true. Because though I'm after the answer from God in the coffee, God is after my heart and a relationship with me. And if that means we're gonna linger a little longer in the journey so that we can be together, that's ultimately what he's after. And maybe I should be too. So I wanna give you some tips because in the end, I don't want you to hear me say don't listen to advisors because in my life, this has been the most helpful thing. Humanly speaking, God's voice must remain primary. But I think over and over we see the wisdom in counselors and we must have wise advisors or we will stumble and fall fast. But not all advisors are equally wise. Not only does the Bible say that you should have wisdom in the multitude of advisors, but the Bible also says that you walk with the wise and you become wise. But then it talks about what happens when you walk with fools. So not all advisors are equally wise. Four tips to choosing an advisor, and we'll wrap it up with this. Number one, find and choose someone who is willing to tell you the truth and they have nothing to lose by telling you the truth. In other words, they're not worried about struggling with telling you the hard things or they're not worried about losing the friendship by telling you something difficult. People who have nothing to lose by telling you the truth. Secondly, choose people who are where you wanna be and they're just simply willing to show you their map. Don't go to someone when you're struggling financially who's up to their eyeballs in debt. Don't go to somebody who's struggling with every relationship they've ever had and ask them about your marriage advice. Like, Go to someone who's where you wanna be, right? Further down the road. Third, ask more than one person. Multitude of counselors, the Bible repeatedly says. And then go in with a heart that is asking for the Lord himself to speak. Say, God, would you speak through them? Lord, would you help me hear you today? At the end of the day, I don't want the advisor's wisdom. I want God to speak through them. It's him I ultimately want to hear from. So when you sit down with the advisors, three questions that I found really helpful, I hope you do too. Number one, is there any option that's out of bounds or out of the boundaries of scripture? This is why I wanna have an advisor who knows the scriptures, who trusts in the scriptures. When we talk about the moral will of God, they can help make sure I'm not overlooking something obvious. Secondly, ask what is the wise thing for me to do? Not what is the legal thing for me to do, not what am I allowed to do this, would I break any laws that you know of if I do this, but rather what is the wise thing for me to do? And then thirdly, I love this question, what would you do if you were me in my circumstances? Now, let me give you two reasons why you won't do this. Number one, it could be pride. One of the things that keeps, especially us men, can I just talk to you? We love to make the decision on our own. That's just a wonderful feeling, isn't it? But God doesn't call us to make the decision on our own. He calls us to make the right decision. And a lot of times that means I have to ask for input. I have to ask for advice. And we don't want to let the pride of the decision being the Lone Ranger cause us to miss out on the wisdom that is around us. The second reason that we may not do this is because we don't want to hear. We're afraid of what we'll hear. I'm afraid that you might say what I think you're going to say and I don't want to do what I think you're going to say so it's better for me just not to ask you and I don't ever have to hear what you don't want to say so I can say, well, I never heard of that. Yeah, right? That might be a red flag, right? Might be a red flag. Whenever we get to the point where we say, I'm afraid of what I'm going to hear. So, at the end of the day, how do we make decisions when we're doing all we know to do that are difficult? I just want to encourage you. Listen to God primarily. 
Listen to wise advisors secondarily. Know that you may not ever achieve 100% clarity and it'll rarely be easy. But I wanna tell you, it's not impossible and it's worth the wrestling in the end. If nothing else, you become closer to your creator, closer to your God in the process. I love that Paul went there, but he had to wrestle through it all and so will we. Now, let's do this. I don't know where we stand. Isaac, what's the status with baptism? After the last song. We'll do it on video? Okay, well, wonderful. Hey, we're gonna get to watch a baptism. Can we just celebrate that together? Amen. All right, so let's do this. We're gonna hear a live example of what it means to wrestle with discerning God's will here in just a second, but remain seated if you would, and I just wanna ask you, you know what, you've been sitting for a while, I don't want you to get too comfortable here. So let's all stand, and let's say this memory verse together, and it's Acts chapter 20, verse 24. Would you just say it out nice and loud with me? Even if you don't know it, you can read, so let's just say it together. Acts 20, verse 24, say it with me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace, Acts 20, 24. Thank you, sound great. Be seated if you would. I wanna invite Josie and Dane up to the stage. Would you welcome them, Josie and Dane? So if you don't know, Dane is our student pastor and uh, for, I guess, what, the last four years or so? And Josie, yeah. And Josie sings on our praise team and does a wonderful job. And they have a beautiful young daughter named Audrey. And they've been wrestling, I don't know, the last several months, would you say? And just sort of hearing from the Lord. And I wanted them just to kind of share that process and how God's leading them. So, Dane? For sure, for sure. Thank you, Mark. So, uh, so we've never really um, been, been people who kind of knew where God was leading us long-term. Um, obviously, being in ministry, I get asked that a lot. Um, and uh, we just never, that's never really been how, how God's spoken to us, how God's directed my life or, or, Audrey, or Josie's life, really. Um, Audrey's life. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but he has always seen fit to, to speak to us uh, in specific moments um, at specific times in our life. Uh, four years ago, as Mark said, we uh, came on staff here um, and uh, man, felt, felt very strongly that God had called us here to, to lead our student ministry. Um, and man, we were excited about that. Um, we, like Mark said, had, had prayed a lot. Uh, we'd prayed for open doors, closed doors. I'd spoken to mentors in my life, asked them, hey, where, what do you see when you see my life and uh, how God has gifted me? Where, where should I go? Um, and so when we came here four, four and a half years ago, uh, we felt very confident God had, had brought us here, uh, had given us a very strong sense of peace about it. And, uh, and like I said, we have, we've thoroughly loved it and enjoyed mm-hmm. our time being here. Um, and fast forward to about the end of this summer, um, I, uh, if you don't know, I'm a, I'm a reserve uh, army chaplain uh, as well. Um, and so at the end of this last summer, uh, I had a two week training down at Fort Hood. And uh, uh, during that time, really began to feel uh, this calling from God, this, this impression from God that we were supposed to do that full time on active duty. Um, that was not our plan at all, actually. Um, our plan was, was frankly quite the opposite. Uh, we were planning to, to get out in about a year. Um, but, uh, but I couldn't shake this, this strong sense that, that God was placing on my heart that I was supposed to be there full time. Um, 
And so that initially, initial impressions was fear um, and just sheer terror. I was like, because that's not what our plan was. Um, but then nextly, I, I called Josie up with the little reception that we had out there in you know, nowhere Fort Hood. Um, and I just called her up and said, hey, listen, I'm not telling you we're doing this. Uh, I'm just telling you that I've kind of had this experience out here and I don't know what to do with it. Um, and so I don't believe that God would call me to go somewhere that he wouldn't affirm to you as well. Um, and so I just want you to take uh, the next week while I'm away and, and just pray about this and just ask God to make this very clear to us. Where is he wanting us to go? We, mm. we wanna go where he wants us to go. Yeah. Uh, we're a firm believer that, man, the best place to be is at the center of God's will where he wants you to be, um, regardless of whether that makes logical sense to us or not. Um, and so I asked her to, to pray about that. And a week went by, I came back home. And, uh, and during that, that week, both of us had had some other conversations with family, with mentors. Uh, I'd been able to reach out to some guys that were on active duty uh, who I'd kind of kept in touch with and kind of explained this to them. And they prayed for me and, and for us. And um, her and I went on a walk uh, when we came back. And, uh, and, and she said the same thing to me. She says, you know, I think, I think you're right. I, I think this is where God is leading us to go. Um, and so... Uh, uh, we feel as though we've gotten enough affirmation about this uh, that the, the obedient thing to do uh, is to, to take a step forward towards it, to, to put in an application for it, and to just see what God does with that. It's, it's not an automatic thing, and so you have to put in an application for it. Um, those applications get looked at about five times a year. And so the next time uh, my application, or the, the, when my application gets looked at, will be uh, beginning of November. So here in about a week, actually, um, it'll get looked at. And then we won't know for certain if it got accepted uh, for about another week or two after that. So about mid-November, we would know. Um, and, uh, and if that application is accepted, uh, then we would be looking to, uh, to need to go to our, our first duty post probably early next year sometime um, is what that, that timeline would look like. But, uh, uh, but the reason that we wanted to share that with y'all today um, uh, before we even know for sure, is, is because LifePoint has very much become our, our church family. Uh, we, we've loved being here. Uh, we've loved being a part of what God is doing here. Um, and as we wrestle with this, this sense of where is God leading us to go, uh, with, with hearts that genuinely want to go where he wants us to go, man, we want to invite you all as our family to pray with us uh, about that. Our prayer is, is very simple. It's, God, if, if you want us there, then accept that application. And if you don't want us there, then deny it. Um, mm. People are put into the army, I believe, because God is the one who makes that final say. And so it doesn't matter what my resume looks like. It doesn't matter uh, whether people think I'm qualified for it or not. If, if God wants us there, then he'll pass it. And if he doesn't, then he'll deny it. Mm. And, uh, and so our prayer right now, we'd invite you all to, to join us in, is just praying just that, God, if you want us there, uh, then open that door. Mm. And if you don't, then close it. And so uh, uh, that's the announcement I wanted to bring up this morning um, and welcome you all into uh, as we ourselves pray, pray about this going forward. Um, that's the summarized version of the story. And so if there are uh, any questions, obviously we're not, we're not leaving tomorrow, right? Um, we'll, we'll be around. We're gonna celebrate baptisms right after this, which is exciting. Um, but then after that, we'll, be, uh, we'll both be in the Connection Center um, and so if any of y'all have any questions about that or anything like that, we're, we're there uh, to, uh, to field any of, those, any of those questions. And so like I said, y'all are our family. We, we love being here um, and we're uh, overjoyed that we get to pursue God's will together um, uh, as, a, as a LifePoint family. So. That's awesome. Well, just 
so you just kind of get clarity on all that information. That's a lot of information, but it is an exciting time for uh, just for Dane and Josie and Audrey to be gathering. And I think I've told Dane this many times, if I were to look up on Wikipedia or on an, any kind of a dictionary to go, what does an army chaplain look and act like? I think it's Dane, right? <laughs> I think he's perfectly qualified, right? And what I'm excited about them is not only their faithfulness, but they are going to a massive mission field. And as God is leading them, I love their faith to come and say, look, it's not even a hundred, it's not even a done deal yet, but I want to invite you to begin praying with us. Isn't that just a great step of faith to invite us in because they're trusting God as we all want to be, you know, pursuing him and trusting him. And so we get to just take this journey together. And uh, so here's what I want to do. Uh, as Dane said, he, he and Josie will be in the Connection Center after the service. You can stop by and let them know you're praying. They're not going to leave until probably late January-ish. We'll know more as, as the months go by, but he just wants to go ahead and invite in the prayers now. So would you do this? Would you just stand and let's just begin as a church family to pray uh, for their family. And if you wanted to symbolize it, there's nothing magical uh, about this, but even if you wanted to extend your hand as a sign of joining us in prayer, I'm just going to put my hands on their shoulder. And would you just join me in praying for uh, the Meotives? God, I just pray for uh, Dane and Josie in this season. This is such a tender time in their life. And yet Dane has told me reportedly that there is just a supernatural peace that you have given them. And so first we just say thank you that you continue to speak and you continue to give peace that only um, makes sense through you. And Lord, as you continue to lead them in the days ahead, we know there's an important meeting in November where um, a group of people that we don't know will make a decision that will be led by you. And so we just put them in your hands and we ask you to completely shut the door if it's not your will and let the doors fly open if it is. And God, we just come open-handed to what you want. More than anything, we just ask that you bless their home, that you continue to be the center of, of their family, that you continue to give them peace and courage as they move forward. God, just continue to use them as a family unit. We just ask your blessings over them in, in the weeks and months ahead and, and in the years ahead. We're so grateful for this time together where we all come before you asking for your discernment, for your will. God, lead us as only you can, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you'll continue to pray for them, would you just let them know by showing appreciation here today? I hope today's message was an encouragement to you. And if you'd like a little more information about our church, just visit us on our website at lifepointplano.org.